I grew up in the Philippines. And I came to New York City in 2012 and came to know Trinity Baptist through a friend from 30 years ago. And let me introduce you to my home country. So the Philippines is in Southeast Asia. It's an archipelago of over 7,000 islands, 2,000 of which are inhabited. In total, we have over 150 languages and dialects. And uh, we are the only Christian nation in Asia. We are surrounded by Muslim countries, Buddhists, and you know, below us is Indonesia. We're east of Vietnam. Um, over 85% are Roman Catholics, some 5% are Evangelicals and some other Christian cults. And then we have a small but significant Muslim population. So, uh, but in total, we have over 90% who profess to believe in God, who shun abortion and do not like divorce. And so how do you share the gospel to God-fearing people? Um, you say very little, but you do much. So the Filipinos are no strangers to, to disasters. We have some 18 to 20 tropical storms that en enter Philippine waters, and about half of these make landfall. And you might remember two years ago, we had a Category 5 super typhoon, Haiyan, that displaced over a million Filipinos and killed about 10,000. We're also located along the Pacific Rim of Fire. We have a lot of active volcanoes. We have um, earthquakes. We're a very poor nation. Um, about a quarter of the population live below the poverty line. About 1% own 90% of the country's wealth. Um, but we're a very rich nation in terms of natural resources, but we, the government is, is very corrupt. It's, it's maybe one of, it ranks high among the list of corrupt nations. And, um, but again, as I said, the richest resource is the people. Um, a lot of the uh, people are professionals. We export a lot of our professionals. Many fathers have left their families so that they can break abroad, so they can send home money. And in the last two decades, uh, these modern-day heroes have actually kept the economy afloat by sending their dollars and pounds and euros and what have you. Um, but this, if a picture can paint can a thousand words, the, the, the people are incredibly, incredibly warm, resilient, long-suffering. And um, in the last 20 years, I've been very blessed to have been part of a church that has really taught me how to be sensitive and responsive to other people's needs. And you just can't help it. It's more difficult not to when you're face-to-face -face with, with sickness and poverty and what have you. Um, my church has also been very actively involved in, in healing and deliverance ministry, very involved in a support group for people with mental illness. I didn't mention I, I worked as a psychiatrist for over 10 years, and I'm um, working towards getting licensed in America. As you know, I have to repeat many things here. Um, my church has also been part of an intercessory group which is composed of many Christians from all over the country. And for the last 20 years, we've been praying, praying, praying for the country. And uh, I'm so happy to be able to share with you about my country, but we'll be overjoyed if you will partner with us in praying. Next year, we'll be holding our presidential elections. And it's a critical time that we have a president who is God-fearing and who's chosen by God. In past years, we've had terrible 
election-related violence. And please pray that that is not going to happen this time. There's always massive rampant vote-buying cheating. So pray that the Filipinos will not sell their votes for a measly $10. And that is very common. Pray that the church, the Filipino church, will really arise and really stand in the gap and continue praying for the country. Intercede and um, confess. Pray for, uh, you know, say prayers of confession for the sins of corruption and prayerlessness and complacency. Pray that all systems and networks and spiritual roots of corruption be abolished and that the church will arise and fulfill its destiny of being light to the nations, especially this part of the world. We are all one church, one body, and we're all created to be free. So now I will be reading from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 16. I'll be reading in Tagalog. At nangyari pagkaraan ng sanggayon na ang batis ay natuyo sapagkat walang ulan sa lupain. At ang salta ng Panginoon ay dumating sa kanya na sinasabi, Ikaw ay bumangon, paroon ka sa sarepta na nauukol sa Sidon at tumahan ka roon. Inutusan ko ang isang babae na pakainin ka. Sa gayoy, bumangon siya at naparoon sa sarepta at nang siya'y dumating sa pintuan ng bayan, isang babae ay nandoon na namumulot ng patpat. At tinawag niya siya at sinabi, Sinasamo ko sa iyo, dadahan mo ako ng konting tubig upang ako'y makainom. At nang siya'y yumayaon upang kumuha, tinawag niya siya at sinabi, Dalhan mo ako, sinasamo ko sa iyo ng isang subong tinapay sa iyong kamay. At kanyang sinabi, Habang ang Panginoon ay Diyos, ako'y walang kahit munting tinapay, kahit isang dakot na harina sa gusi at konting langis sa banga. At narito ako'y namumulat ng dalawang patpat upang ako'y pumasok, ihanda sa akin at sa aking anak upang kami kumain bago kami mamatay. At sinabi ni Elias sa kanya, huwag kang matakot. Yumaon ka at gawin mo ang iyong sinabi, ngunit igawa mo muna ako ng tinapay at pagkatapos gumawa ka para sa iyo at sa iyong anak. Sapagat ganito ang sabi ng Panginoon, ang Diyos ng Israel, ang gusi ng harina ay hindi makukulangan at ang banga ng langisman ay hindi mababawasan hanggang sa araw na magpaula ng Panginoon sa ibabaw ng lupa. At siya yumaon at ginawa ang ayon sa sinabi ni Elias at kumain ng babae at siyang kanyang sangbahayan ng maraming araw. Ang gusi ng harina ay hindi nakulangan, ang banga ng langis ay hindi nabawasan ayon sa salta ng Panginoon na kanyang sinabi sa pamamagitan ni Elias. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elise. You know, a lot of the things that Elise asked for us to pray for the Philippines, we need to be praying for our own country. So um, why don't we just spend a moment to pray for those things that Elise mentioned. Lord, I thank you that we have this international community that we we not only hear about things that are happening all over the world, but we have people in our community of faith who, um, who are part of those things. And so, Lord, this morning, we, we want to focus our prayers on the Philippines and the, the state of that nation. Lord, I thank you that, that, that most of the nation is Christian, at least in name,
and thus they have an awareness of you. But Lord, I pray that that awareness would turn into relationship and that those people would, would really come to know you because of what Jesus did and that they would have a, a vibrant and vital relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that that would, um, that would make an impact on the government and that you would raise up a, a godly leader in this next election and that you would keep the country safe from, from corruption and, and violence that has, has surrounded elections in the past. And Lord, I pray that you would put leadership in place in that country that would lead them toward you because it is only when we move toward you that we find health and wholeness and security. And so, Lord, I pray for that nation, and I pray for the believers there, that they would, as Elise said, that, that it wouldn't just be that they, they speak about you, but that they would show, um, that they would show one another the, the power of, of who you are because are through the deeds that they do, that they would demonstrate the gospel with their lives. Lord, I pray your protection, I pray your blessing on the nation of the Philippines this morning. For your name's sake, amen. We are, um, as James mentioned a moment ago, we are kicking off this, this three-week mini-series um, called Gratitude Leads to Generosity. And, um, and last week, if you were here, when we wrapped up the free series, we, we wrapped it up by, by talking about the, the difference between self-interest and generosity, and that, um, that generosity is not just about giving of our finances, though that's part of it. Uh, generosity is having this, this attitude um, I called it attitudinal generosity, where we don't just look to our own interests, but we look to the interests of others, and we, we consider others as better than ourselves, as we heard from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. And so this morning, we're going to kind of jump off of that, um, that idea of attitudinal generosity, and we're going to move into this series of uh, where we are talk- moving toward Thanksgiving which is all about gratitude and how gratitude breeds generosity in us. A couple of years ago, um, we spent a few weeks looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to be generous in response to God's grace toward them. He said explicitly in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, Jesus gave his all for us. Thus, our giving should always be a response to what God has done in our lives. And the more we come to understand God's grace in our lives, the more grateful we become, and the more grateful we become, the more generous we become. Um, and this attitude, that, this attitude of generosity goes beyond circumstance. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul holds up the Macedonians and he says that even though they were going through this extreme trial, this severe trial, they were incredibly generous. Why? 
because they understood the grace of God toward them. And so they gave out of gratitude for God's goodness and to them in Jesus Christ, the message of salvation that reconciles us all to God. So how can we not be generous when we look at how generous God has been with us? That was Paul's message to the Corinthians. That's God's message to us. Now, I'm going to make an assumption this morning. Actually, I'm going to make two assumptions. And and assuming is always a little dangerous. I'm going to assume that those of us who are Christ followers have at least some grasp of the magnitude of what God did for us in sending Jesus to die for us. Is that a fair assumption? Okay. So, so I'm not stepping out too far on that one. I'm also going to assume that because we're grateful for that sacrifice, um, we are also a generous people. That, that because we see the magnitude of God's sacrifice for us, his generosity toward us, that because of our gratitude in that, then we are going to be generous with our lives. Can I assume that? A little less vigor on that one? That's the premise that I'm going to operate from this morning. So if we are grateful people, we're going to be generous people. So let me start with a question. And I asked our leadership this question yesterday. Um, How important is a vibrant church? And by church, I'm talking about big C church, not little C church. But big C church, the the body of Christ universal. How important is a vibrant church to the gospel making an impact on our city and on our world? How many of you would say that it is absolutely essential for the church to be vibrant? All right, that's about 100% of us. Next question. And this one is very important for us to, to answer. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on it because I just want you to, to wrestle with it. How important is Trinity Baptist Church's role in the church being vibrant and, making, and, and helping the gospel to make an impact in New York City and around the world? How important is our role as the little C church in the impact of the big C church? Would you say that, would you say that our being faithful to God's call is very important? Would you say that it's somewhat important or would you say that it's not important at all? Don't raise your hand because that's going to make me crazy. If you, ah, It's not that important. See, how we answer this question is going to determine to a large degree how generous we're going to be with our giving of our time, 
our talents, and our treasure to the ministry of this church. Our, our generosity is not based on the ministry of this church. Our generosity is based on our gratitude toward God, what God has done. But our generosity in giving to the ministry of this church will to a large degree depend on how we answer this question. Is Trinity very important? Is it just somewhat important? Or is it not important at all? Because how we wrestle with that brings us to this question of how much am I going to give of myself? In this series, we're going to talk about um, generosity um, leads to us giving of our time, our talents, and our treasure. Next week, we're going to talk about time. The following week, we're going to talk about talents. This morning, congratulations, we're going to talk about treasure. So to do that, I need to just start by telling you where we are right now so that we're all on the same page. There's a letter in your, um, um, an insert in your bulletin, but I want to I just make some, some things vis- visual for us because some of us are visual learners. Our fiscal year begins April 1, and it ends March 31. And so on, on April 1st, we have zero dollars toward our, our annual budget. And if we um, hit our budget by March 31, we will have this year 1.77 million. Um, that's what our budget is this year. And that's what uh, we agreed to as a congregation at our annual meeting back in April. Where we are right now, if you look in your um, bulletin, is that on this timeline, and, and we're about halfway through, the, through our fiscal year, we, have, um, we should be at 890000 roughly, which is halfway between zero and $1.77 million. Okay? Are we tracking with the math on this? Where we actually are right now is at 458,000, which, if my math is right, is about 432K behind where we should be. this this number constitutes where we should should have been in July, but that's where we are now at the end of October, beginning of November. Now, I understand that some of us get uh, bonuses at, at various times during the year, and that giving is not exactly linear, and that summer our numbers go down, and so we don't have as much giving as at other times of the year. But this is a huge gap. This is a really big gap. And so what this indicates to me is that either we don't think Trinity is very important 
to the gospel making an impact in our city and our world, or if we do believe this, if we do believe that it's very important, then we're having a faith issue. Because we don't believe that God is going to be able to provide for all of our needs, and so we're hanging on to our stuff. Yeah. I'm saying that Yeah. I no no no. I I I would say I would say that that we have often had this tension of faith. I won't say that we've always had this tension of faith. I will say that we've often had this tension of faith. And I'll talk about some of this more in a little bit, but thanks for raising the question. Um, did I successfully dodge that question? I'm not trying to dodge it. Okay. Maybe this, hopefully, this will make some more sense as we move forward. What I want us to do over these next moments is talk about this tension of faith because I think we always wrestle with a tension of faith. I mean, just think about your, your own life. One morning you wake up and you're full of faith and you believe God can do everything and the next day you wake up and, and, and you don't think God can do anything. One day you're convinced that God is with you and then the next day you're convinced that God is against you. One day you're stepping out of the boat like Peter, ready to walk on water, and the next day you're clinging to your life preserver. Right? I mean, I think we go back and forth with this all the time. This tension of faith is something that we see in the text that Elise read to us from 1 Kings chapter 17. If you want to turn there... It's on page 665 in your pew Bible. Let me, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Israel is, ex, is experiencing famine because there's been no rain in the land for quite some time. And the reason there's been no rain in the land is because Elijah prayed that there would be no rain. And the reason that Elijah prayed that there would be no rain is because there was a wicked king, Ahab, on the throne of Israel. Okay? And so Israel is experiencing famine because of Elijah's prayer. So what does God do? Well, God sends Elijah to a widow in Zarephath who has nothing, who is apparently, as the text tells us, one day away from death. She's about to make the last meal for her and her son, and Elijah comes and asks her for water. Now, this strikes me as a little brazen. I mean, 
she's got nothing. Water is in a precious commodity. And here Elijah comes to this widow and says, hey, can you give me water? Well, it's brazen until you consider the fact that God told him to do it. And so he steps out and he does that. And against all odds, she says yes. But then she, as she's about to go and get him water, um, with, with this, I think, incredible generosity, he says, oh, and could you bring me a piece of bread while you're at it? Seriously? <laughs> now put yourself in this widow's place. What would you think about God in that moment? Here is Elijah, the prophet of God, God's representative. And she knew exactly who he was because she says in verse 12, as surely as your God lives. She knows who he is. He asks her for water. She wants to be responsive to what God is asking. She wants to have the spirit of servanthood, the spirit of generosity. She's going to bring him water, but then he asks for bread as well. So she responds to him in verse 12, Do you know who I am? Do you know what I have? I have just a little bit of water, a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour. In fact... I'm going home to prepare my last meal so that my boy and I can die. Have you ever been in that place in your life where you think, God, how much are you going to ask of me? I gave you what you asked for, and then the moment I give it, you ask me for more. Have you ever felt that God was being unreasonable in his expectation on your life? I mean, you're giving him 20%, right? Right? 20% of your time, 20% of your passions, 20% of your relationships, which is why some of your relationships are going south. Um, I mean, you're, you're giving him all you got, right? And yet he comes back and he asks for just a little bit more. Have you ever felt like this widow? You're not actually a widow, but you're in her income bracket. You've, you don't have much. You've got just enough for one more meal and then you're going to die. I can appreciate how Elijah felt. God, I don't want to ask a widow for water. God, she doesn't have much of anything. Why are you asking me to ask her for water? And now you're asking me to ask her for some bread too? God, I don't want to ask for that. You see, it had to put Elijah in an uncomfortable place as well. Whenever God invades our space and starts calling us to something great, there's this kind of tension of faith that exists. We want to do what he calls us to do, but then we feel at times as if God is just asking too much. Yesterday, I felt like he was for me, but now I'm not so sure. There's this tension of faith. But here's what we need to understand God is never limited by our resources. 
He's only limited by our willingness to give. You see, God is never limited by our resources. He's only limited by us. See, God could have sent Elijah to anybody. He could have sent him to a king. He could have sent him to an entrepreneur. He could have sent him to a titan of industry. But he didn't. He sent him to a wid- He sent Elijah to a widow. Why? Because God loves using widows. God loves using the most unlikely vehicle to do amazing things. God loves using people who feel as if they are in the midst of famine and about to die so that they can see the wonder and the power and the generosity of God in the midst of their trial. So what happens? She says, I don't have much to give. I've only got enough for one more meal and then I'm going to die. You think you're having a hard day? Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, except for the die part. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Now, it's fascinating to me that in this moment, God doesn't pull Elijah back. But he presses Elijah in. In essence, he's telling her, I want you to take what you have and I want you to trust God with it. I want you to believe that the little you have, God can do so much more with it than you can. You may not have much and you're thinking, I I wish I had so much more to give. But friends, what will unlock the miraculous is not the person who has much to give giving. But it's where all of us bring what we have and we say, God, this is everything I've got. And God, I want to bring it to you. And if you can do something with my little bit of flour and something with my little bit of oil, if you can do something with what is just enough for me to make it through the day, then I'm going to give it to you because you can do more with it than I can. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Now, I don't understand how all of this works. But I stand here this morning telling you from experience that when you live your life connected to God and when you have open hands and you say, Lord, everything is yours, then God will do amazing things and provide for everything you need. And when we see people who lack what they need, it is an indictment on those of us who have heard the voice of God to be the provision for those who are are in need. Verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. I love that. 
See, like the Corinthians, she gave out of her extreme poverty. And because she did, it says, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word, the Lord... in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Friends, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The context for miracle is sacrifice. The context for miracle is not us giving out of our abundance. The context for miracle is us giving out of sacrifice. We're not a rich church. We never have been in my tenure here. We've got a bunch of struggling artists. We've got a bunch of people who are just starting out in their careers. We've got a bunch of young families. We've got, we got a bunch of, you know, just folks who are just kind of making it. And yet God has always provided for our church. When I first stepped into this role as lead pastor in 1993, we... We were doing some much-needed renovations on, on this building. This, is, this church was built in 1930, and, and not much had been done to keep it up. And so we were looking at a renovation project of, to the tune of about a million dollars, and we didn't have it. And we were a much smaller church at the time and a much smaller staff. But we made a commitment that we were going to take care of this place that God had blessed us with. And so, and we also made the commitment during that season that we were going to pay all of our contractors and all of our bills before we paid salaries. Those were the first checks that went out the door. And there were months during that season when I didn't think we were going to make payroll. I didn't think I was going to get paid. And yet, God was always faithful. And... God provided for everything all along the way. Um, If you've been around Trinity for the last few years, you know that um, our fiscal year ends in March, and you know that we've come up against that last month of our fiscal year um, way behind budget. And yet God has been faithful, and he's always closed the gap. Going back to the question I asked at the beginning of whether or not you think Trinity's role in the gospel making an impact is very important, let me just remind you of a few things. If you were here last week, you saw a video about the impact that we've made in Rwanda over the last decade. And if you went to Nyamagabi or Mutasoma in the southwestern region of Rwanda and asked those people, if Trinity was important to the gospel making an impact, you would hear a resounding yes. If you went to the pastors in Haiti that a year ago we we trained in in the Alpha course and you asked them (coughs) if Trinity was important in in the gospel making an impact in their country, you would hear a resounding yes. If... Um, if you talk to um, 
the missionaries in Africa that we support and the missionaries in the Dominican and in, in, in Israel and in India, if, if Trinity is important to the gospel making an impact in the areas where they're working, they would say yes. And here in New York City, we have cared for the people in the aftermath of, of Superstorm Sandy for two years making an impact in Far Rockaway and Staten Island. We support missionaries in our city who are working with college students from all over the world. We support missionaries who are working with professionals and artists and influencers of culture, others who are serving the marginalized and the under-resourced, others who are working with ambassadors to the UN. Through those people, we are making an impact. And it's not just out there, it's in here. Some of you here this morning, when you came here, you didn't think you had any value. But you've come to realize that you were made in the image of God and that you matter to God. Some of you have marriages that wouldn't have survived if it were not for this community of faith. Some of you have reclaimed your sons and you've reclaimed your daughters. Some of you had given up on God, but you found new faith in this place. And in the last six weeks... Some of you have found a freedom in Jesus that you've never known before. And two weeks ago, some of you experienced a healing and a deliverance and a restoration that you've been longing to have. The reason we've been able to have this kind of impact, the reason we've been able to accomplish great things is not because we've given out of our abundance. We don't have abundance. It's because we've given out a sacrifice. God, this is our flower. And this is our oil. God, you can do something more with it than I can. So you do the miraculous out of this. Friends, we hold on to our stuff. When we hold on to our stuff, we are living in a mental famine afraid that the drought is never going to come to an end and we just want to hold on to our little bit of flour and our little bit of of oil so that we can go home and make a meal and me and my boy will die. That doesn't sound like a very good option. I think the better option is to say, God, I have a feeling that you can do more with what I have than I can do with what I have. See, what I have isn't enough. What we have together isn't enough. What we bring together won't be enough. It's only going to be possible if we bring what we have and we place it at the feet of Jesus and watch God miraculously multiply the resources that we have with his extraordinary invisible resourcing. I love the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 Um, which, by the way, is the only story other than the passion of Christ told in all four of the Gospels. Did you know that? Do you think that's significant? You bet it is. The reason why is because God wants to make sure that we see what can happen when we take our little loaves and fishes, which is all we've got. When we give Him our lunch... Guess what he can do? He can multiply it and feed a multitude. He can provide a banquet for a multitude. 
but he wants everything. He wants our whole lunch. See, God is never limited by our resources. He's only limited by us. So back to the story. Things are going well for the widow and her family. They're eating. The supply keeps coming. It's not being depleted. They're having this great old time because because she's invited the prophet into her home. And by association, she has invited God into her home. She's invited God to make himself at home in her home. Now, if the story ended right there, it would be pretty cool, right? The supply just keeps coming. And that's all that Elise read for us. But if you know the story in 1 Kings 17, the story doesn't end there. And the next turn of events is not the way we would have scripted it. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Now this is where I think God needs a better PR person. Right? I mean, come on, God. You asked for water, she gave you water, and then you asked for more, and she went over and she gave you everything she had. What? And, and you didn't protect her, you didn't bless her. I mean, come on, God. You let stuff like this happen? Wouldn't you think that because she was generous that God would protect her and her son? That's not what happens. He dies. You see, sometimes when you invite God into your space, it doesn't go the way you think it should. Verse 18. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? I've seen this a thousand times. God is good to you and good to you and good to you and then something bad happens and you say, God has never been good to me. She's the beneficiary that every single day that food, that flour, that oil, that water is multiplied. It is miraculously turned into abundance but then her son dies and she assumes that God is against her. I think it's strange how easy it is for us to convince ourselves that God is against us and how hard it is to convince ourselves that God is for us. See, inside of her, deep inside of her, she didn't believe that God was for her. For Elijah, maybe, but not for me. She says, is this why you came? To remind me of my sin, to kill my boy. How many times have we taken the risk to come close to God, to give him everything, and then we feel he turns his back on us? Is this why you did this, Elijah? He says, verse 19, give me your son. He took him from... He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, 
Have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? His question tells me he didn't know this was going to happen. His prayer tells me that he was just as confused, just as um, shocked by this turn of events as she was. And this question reminds me that no matter how close you are to God, how God works is often confusing and mysterious. God, why have you done this? Have you ever been there? Sure you have. We all have. In fact, I'm there right now. There are people I love, people I know love God who are experiencing incredible pain in their life. Incredible disappointment in their life. God, why them? That's my question. Why not those miserable, sorry people out there who don't follow you? Why is my loved one, why is this person who loves you having to go through this? Elijah says, God, why did you do this? Verse 21, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord. Three times. He he didn't refuse. Or he, he refused to give up. He kept going back to God. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And I love verse 22. It's so simple. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. As I reflected on this text and we talked about it at our staff meeting this past week, there were a couple of things that hit me. One is that Often we pray, and the boy doesn't come back to life. And that increases the tension of faith. It makes it harder to trust God with everything that we have. I get that. I live that. But the other thing that occurred to me, is that sometimes we think that God is the one behind the, tra- the pain and the tragedy in our lives. And we wonder why he allows it, or we think like this widow that he allows it because of his disdain for our sin. But here's the question that I want us to consider. Is it possible? Is it possible that God knew all along that the boy was going to get sick and die, and the conversation that began with, would you get me some water, and while you're at it, would you get me a piece of bread, and by the way, if you invite me into your home, you'll have an endless supply from God. God will create an abundance for you. Is it possible that the opening conversation that seems so mundane, can I have a drink of water? was God's way of invading her life so that the moment she needed God close enough to bring her life, he was right there in her home. 
See, we need God close. We need God close enough to breathe life into us. And the problem is, in those moments when we find ourselves in the middle of death, in the middle of tragedy, in the middle of pain, in the middle of famine, God is outside of the house because when he asked for a drink of water, we said, you know, I only have this little bit of water and I need it and I can't trust you with it. When God asked for a piece of bread, we said, God, I only have enough for one more day. What I have is just barely enough to get by. And so I can't trust you with it. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that God breathes life into the person who hears the voice of God and gives out of their sacrifice. And the way that God is invited into your home is not when you say, hey God, I'd love for you to come by and hang out for a little while. Because the opening conversation that God has with you and that God has with me is where God says, I know you're in a famine and I know you don't have much, so I'm going to make this real simple. I'm going to ask you for everything. And to the person who gives everything, I'll be there for you when things go south. I'll make your home my home. I'll make your life the place where I bring life. I wonder how many times in our lives God has wanted to step in to bring the miraculous, but we just left him outside because it was just too big of too big of a sacrifice to invite God in. I don't know what you have. I don't know what you're holding on to. I don't know what God is asking of you. But I do know how the numbers round up. He's asking for everything. We may have just a little bit of water, a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, just a little bit of talent, just a little bit of time, just a little bit of treasure. We may feel we can barely make it through the week. But here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Over the next two months, I want to invite you to invite God in. I want to invite you not to give out of your abundance, not to give out of your convenience, not even to give out of your generosity, but to say, God, I want you to do something in my life. I want you to do something through this community of faith that goes beyond everything that we have because we're giving you everything that we have. Friends, I love this church. I love what God is doing in this place. We are in a new season of expectation of what God is doing through us. There are things happening here that haven't happened in a long, long time. And because we are the international community that we are, when God does something here in us, it has a ripple effect that reverberates literally around the world. 
And so the stewardship that God has given to us is not just for our little community. It's not even just for our neighborhood or for our city. The stewardship he's given us is a stewardship of the world. And the question that God is asking us is, will you be responsible with that stewardship? As Paul communicated to the Corinthians, Jesus gave his all for us. And shows us that generosity isn't about how much we give. But it's about how much it costs us. Jesus gave everything. And he asked the same from us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that when we trust you with everything, we open the windows of heaven. I thank you that your generosity and your goodness and your abundance is a constant toward our lives. And I pray, Father, that during this particular season, as we focus on being generous with our time, with our talents, and with our treasure. I pray that every single one of us would participate in a moment of sacrificial giving. I pray, Father, that you would not find in us equal giving, but that you would find in us equal sacrifice. that you would find us not giving simply out of our abundance, not offering you our leftovers, but saying, Lord Jesus, here's my five loaves, here's my two fish. It's all I've got. But I trust you with it. Lord, I pray that what you will find from us is that We trust you with everything so that once again you can prove that you are not only trustworthy, but that you are good and gracious and faithful and that your abundance will overflow. And may all of us come to declare, as this widow did, now I know that you are God and that the words you speak are true. 